Numbers 33. We're going to be in chapters 33 and 34. Let's pray together before we read from Numbers. Father God, we are thankful that we can be together, um, especially even this time of year where we think on all of the ways in which we can be thankful to you. Uh, We're thankful that we can gather and that we can hear your word preached. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would be at work in our midst, that you would be producing growth in us this morning, that you'd be saving sinners that are are lost and and that don't know you this morning. I pray that you'd be at work uh, in our midst, Lord. So be be present with us by your Spirit. Be working in our hearts. We pray that that all of it would be to the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to see two reasons to be thankful. So I still got it in. Two reasons that we should be thankful this morning. Two reasons from our passage that we should be people who are filled with gratitude. So we're going to be starting in Numbers 33. And as we read in this passage, it's a very long summary of Israel's journey. And it's not just their journey starting in the book of Numbers. It's really starting all the way back in the book of Exodus. So we're going to be seeing Moses here recounting everywhere that the people of Israel had gone while they were wandering in the wilderness. So as we're reading through this, I'm going to take just a a moment at times to kind of say, hey, and this is where this happened in Numbers. So I'll kind of interject as we're reading. So we just see like where Moses is saying they've been, but also how does this all tie back into the book of Numbers? So let's begin. Uh, Actually, what he's going to be sharing is from the book of Exodus. So the events here, starting in chapter 33, took place in the book of Exodus. Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. These are the stages of the people of Israel, when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the fifteenth day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. So that's the Exodus event. Verse 5. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Succoth. And they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hahiroth, which is east of Baal-Zephon. And they camped before Migdal. And they set out from Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. So that's the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. And they went a three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elam. At Elam there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. And they set out from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. And then they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dafka. And they set out from Dafka and camped at Elush. And they set out from Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. So here is where God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. He gave them his laws at Mount Sinai. And it's actually here in the wilderness of Sinai that the book of Numbers began. And the first ten chapters of Numbers, we were still at Sinai. Okay, verse 16. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hatava. And they set out from Kibroth Hatava and camped at Hazaroth. 
Now, here in Hazaroth is where Aaron and Miriam opposed Moses' leadership. And God made it very clear, Moses is my chosen leader. That happened in Numbers chapter 12. And then what we're about to read, starting in verse 18, is a bunch of places that actually get skipped over in the book of Numbers. And they set out from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. And they set out from Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. And they set out from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Rissa. And they set out from Rissa and camped at Kelhathala. And they, camped, they set out from Kelhathala and camped at Mount Shefer. And they set out from Mount Shefer and camped at Harada. And they set out from Harada and camped at Machhelath. And they set out from Machhelath and camped at Tahoth. And they set out from Tahoth and camped at Terah. And they set out from Terah and camped at Mithka. And they set out from Mithka and camped at Hashmana. And they set out from Hashmana and camped at Maseroth. And they set out from Maseroth and camped at Benjakin. And they set out from Benjakin and camped at Horhagadgad. And that's my favorite. They set out from Horhagadgad and camped at Jotbethal. And they set out from Jotbethal and camped at, at Abranah. And they set out from Abranah and camped at Ezion Geber. And they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. Okay, so Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. That's where the spies went into the land, came back and gave a bad report, and the people failed to trust God. They didn't believe that God would give them the land, that they could take it by his help. And so then God said, I'm going to judge you by sending you into the wilderness for 40 years. So all that happened there at Kadesh. Verse 37. And they set out from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron, the priest, went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. And they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punan. And they set out from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ai-Abarim in the territory of Moab. And they set out from Aim and camped at Dibongad. And they set out from Dibongad and camped at Almon-Diblathame. And they set out from Almon-Diblathame and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. And they set out from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Jericho by the Jordan, that's where... Balaam tried to curse Israel three times, but God wouldn't let that happen. Verse 49, they camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth, as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. All right, we're going to pause there, because frankly, I need water, and you guys are probably tired of hearing lots of strange name places. It's a lot of recounting, and that's a lot of camping. Now, I know... We have a lot of camping lovers here at First Baptist, and I get it. I get why you love camping. It's biblical. Right there. 49 verses, 34 times the word camping comes up. So all you camping people, this is your proof text for why you can say that camping is biblical. All right, let's talk about this passage. Because all, if all that we get out of this is that it tells us where the Israelites spent some time in the desert, this passage might not be super helpful to us. We might be tempted to think like a genealogy in the Bible or like a census in the Bible. Meh, I'm going to skip it. This doesn't impact my life. I don't need to hear all the places the Israelites went to, so I'm going to skip it. I'm going to save some time. I'm not going to read it. But genealogies, 
are theological. Genealogies teach us about God. Censuses, it's a tough word to say, censuses teach us about God too. If you're not persuaded of that, go back and listen to Steve's first sermon in the book of Numbers. Censuses teach us about God. And so does a camping passage like this. This camping passage is theological. It teaches us about God. When Israel camped, they didn't do it arbitrarily. They didn't say, hey, this is a nice shady spot. Let's camp here. No, they camped because God told them to. They camped at God's command. Numbers 10 tells us that God's presence, that it appeared as fire by day and cloud by night. And whenever God's presence moved, the people moved too. Numbers 23.10 says, At the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. So all along, from the day that Israel left Egypt to the day that they stood on the edge of the promised land, all 40 years, God was guiding his people. So that's the first reason that we have to be thankful. God is guiding us. Just like Israel, God guides us. His presence goes with us. And his presence went with his people in numbers. And we have to remember this. We have to remember it because the text doesn't always say it. Most of the time in the book of Numbers, we read things like this. And the people set out from such and such a place. Or the people journeyed to such and such a place. More often than not, there's no mention of God when it talks about where they're going. There's no mention of God's guiding presence. But Numbers 10 just read that, makes it incredibly clear God was purposefully, graciously guiding his people. His presence was always going before them. And so Numbers 33 here, it doesn't say anything about God's presence, but it's there. God is with his people. And that's so important for us to understand. God's presence is always with his people, even if we don't realize it, even if we're not aware of it. I love the book of Esther. Not only because it's an awesome story that is filled with irony, but because it's one of only two books in the Bible where God's name is literally never mentioned. Now, that's a weird thing for a pastor to say. I love a book of the Bible because God is not in it. But here's the thing. God is not left out. He may not be mentioned, but he is absolutely, totally at work. He's at work behind the scenes, bringing all of these events together in this perfectly orchestrated way. Go back and read the book of Esther. It's not long, and you're going to see it. God is protecting his people. God is triumphing over evil. God is putting to shame those who oppose him. God's name is never mentioned, but his handiwork is screaming his name. It is screaming his name. And that's such a great reminder for us. God may be silent, but he is absolutely at work. He may not be appearing to us. His glory may not be visibly filling this place like it filled the tabernacle in the wilderness. God may not speak to us as he spoke to Moses. He may not tell us where to go with a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. But that doesn't mean that God has checked out on us. That doesn't mean that that God is uninterested in our lives. That doesn't mean that, that God is unconcerned, that he's oblivious to what's going on. Nope. This passage teaches the exact opposite. 
God's guiding us. His presence is with us. He has not abandoned us. He is with us, and he's working all of the circumstances and situations and, and relationships in our lives towards a good end. And seeing how purposeful God is with his presence, that should do something for us. It should help to free us from being overly concerned with our lives. We've all heard the phrase before, navel-gazing. We can get so caught up with what's going on in our lives, and from our limited vantage point, our limited perspective, we get consumed and we get overwhelmed by it. We navel-gaze because often we forget about God. But the more that we see how concerned God is with his people, the more that takes root in our lives, the less concerned we'll be with our lives. Now, by less concerned, I don't mean that we'll suddenly become flippant or reckless with our lives, but that we'll have a healthier view of how our lives intersect with the purposes and the plans of God. Now, earlier, I joked about all the campers in our church. I know you're out there. Seriously, if you're new around here, you might not realize it, but there's a lot of people who love camping in this church. I don't want to say you're in the minority, but there's a lot of people who love camping. Proud campers. I'm not exactly one of them. I'm not like anti-camping. I grew up camping once a weekend, or once a weekend. Wow, that would be a lot of camping. Once a year, we went camping, uh, and by Sunday morning, I was ready to go home. Sometimes by like Friday night, it was like we arrived, we saw it, good, let's head home, let's go back home. But if not by Friday, definitely by Sunday morning. That was fun. Give me 362 more days, we can do this all again. So I'm not like a huge, huge fan on camping, But in some respects, we camp every day. We pick up, and we go from one place, and we settle down in another. Sometimes for short periods of time, but but we camp in that way. From, like, our home to the office to back home. Or, like, from home to the appointment to the grocery store to the library to the other appointment and back home. One of those is my routine. One of those is my wife's. You can figure it out. So just like the Israelites... God's presence is always with us. Wherever we go, in whatever situation we find ourselves, with whoever crosses our paths, God is guiding us to a good end. And that frees us from navel-gazing, from being overly concerned about ourselves. So that's the first reason that we have to be thankful. God guides us. Let's look at the second reason. God gifts us. Follow along as I read chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east, and your borders shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim. And cross to Zin, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and pass along to Asmon. And the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be at the sea. For the western border you shall have the great sea and its coast. This shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor you shall draw a line to Labo Hamoth. And the limit of the border shall be at Zedad. Then the border shall extend to Ziphron, and its limit shall be at Hazar Anon. This shall be your northern border. 
You shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazar-Enon to Shepham. And the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain. And the border shall go down and reach to the shoulder of the sea of Chinnereth on the east. And the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its limit shall be at the salt sea. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the people of Reuben, by fathers' houses, and the tribe of the people of Gad, by their fathers' houses, have received their inheritance, and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. These are the names of the men. Of the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. And of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel the son of Emehud. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Eladad the son of Chislon. Of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Buki the son of Jogli. Of the people of Joseph, of the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Heniel, the son of Ephod. Of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemuel, the son of Shifton. Of the tribe of the people of Zebulon, a chief, Elizaphon, of the, the son of Parnach. Of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Azan. And of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ahihud, the son of Shalomi. Of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the names, these are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. So we got lots of names of places, now we have lots of names of people. So we saw that God is guiding us, and now we see that God is gifting us. Here in Numbers 34, God is gifting the Israelites with the promised land. Kind of. It's, it's really not going to happen until the book of Joshua. But he's promising it. He's saying, these are the borders. This is the process for how you divide up the land because it's going to happen. Come Joshua, I am going to give you the land. So the boundaries described here, they're the outer borders of the promised land. From basically the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, and then parts of modern-day Lebanon and and modern-day Syria. And these were to be the boundaries. The land was to be then divided among the tribes. So within those boundaries, they were supposed to divvy it all up. And the tribal chiefs, we just saw here in Numbers 34, would be the ones to oversee the process. And they were going to do that by casting lots. Now, we don't cast lots in our society. It's most similar to, but not exactly like rolling dice. Now, too often... When we think about rolling dice, we often associate it with like random chance. And from our, our vantage point, it is random chance. We don't know what's going to happen, so it's random to us. But from God's vantage point, nothing is random. He orders all things. He brings everything to pass. Even the outcome of rolling dice, of casting lots. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So God's providence is at work even in bringing about the outcome of casting lots. That's where we get the meaning of the phrase one's lot in life. You've heard that phrase. This is one's lot in life. What we have is what God has given us. And God was promising to give his people their lot in the promised land. 
here in Numbers 34. This gift of the promised land and God's presence there, it's what David has in mind in Psalm 16 when he says this, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So God is gifting his people with the promised land. This is to be their inheritance from him. An inheritance of land that awaits them. And we too have a promised gift. We too have an inheritance of land that awaits us. Far greater than even the dimensions of the promised land here in Numbers. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews talks about this greater promised land. He compares it to the promised land of Numbers, and he says it's even better. And all of the Old Testament saints, even the people in the book of Numbers, they were all looking forward to this land. Not the promised land of Numbers, per se, but this greater land, this heavenly city. So listen to Hebrews 11, starting in verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise. That's the promised land in Numbers, the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return the promised land in numbers. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And in Hebrews 13, 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So what is this future city that Hebrews is talking about? Well, Revelation 21 and 22, they tie it all together. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, the promised land, that was a generous gift from God to his people in Numbers. It was a wonderful possession for the people of Israel. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And if they obeyed God, God said, I am going to bless you abundantly in this land. But the promised land was always meant to point forward to the far greater home for God's people. A place where God's presence would dwell, not in tabernacles, not in temples, but God says, I'm going to dwell with my people face to face. And this is the gift that awaits all those who trust in Jesus. We have a heavenly home that is going to come to earth, and we're going to live with God forever. And so we too can say with David, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All right, so we've seen two reasons to be thankful from Numbers 33 and 34. Because God guides us and because God gifts us. But if you thought that was all there was to this sermon, then I'm happy to tell you there's still more. It's 1019. That'd be crazy. Come on. You all are used to Steve. He goes forever. Because we haven't looked at some really important verses in our passage. I conveniently skipped over some verses. If you were paying attention, you're going to be like, whoa, Colin, you missed some stuff. You can't just like skip over that and not say anything. Well, we're going to come back to it. Numbers 33. I skipped Numbers 33 starting in verse 50. We're going to finish off this chapter. And I promise there are like no crazy names. Starting in verse 50. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his, according to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inheritance of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So we see here, yes, we have reason to be thankful. God is guiding us. God is gifting us. He's going to bring us to our eternal home. But also, we need to be careful because sin can trip us up. Moses is saying, God's giving you this wonderful inheritance, people of Israel, but remember to obey. Remember to kick out the people in the land. So we have reason to be thankful, but we also have reason to be careful because sin can trip us up. So we see here a pretty serious warning. In the middle of saying how much he's going to bless and provide for the people of Israel in the promised land, God is also saying, watch out, because there are all kinds of opportunities for you to stumble into sin. If the Israelites had allowed the people of the land to remain, they'd fall into idol worship. And that's what happens. Keep reading In the Bible, they let the people stay. They fell into idol worship. Moses is saying, you're going to abandon God. You're going to abandon His ways. If you let the people of the land live with their figured stones and their metal images and their high places for sacrifice, then the people of Israel could expect that the inhabitants of the land would be those barbs in their eyes and those thorns in their side. And if Israel did fall into sin, they could expect God to do to them what God said he was going to do to the inhabitants of the land. God's judgment on the other nations would actually fall on Israel, and Israel would get kicked out of the land. Keep reading your Bible. That's what happens. So there were real consequences in store for Israel if they fell into sin. So this passage serves as a helpful reminder to us. Sin can trip us up. and So we have to be on guard. We have to watch out. Even as God is guiding us in life and gifting us with this future hope, we must, we must 
actively fight against and flee from sin. So Steve mentioned this Wednesday, this passage that he's really excited to teach on. I'm going to steal a little bit of it right now and talk about it. Sorry, but not that sorry. So 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, we're called to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're to remember that Jesus is coming back and a fantastic future with him awaits us. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back and a fantastic future with God awaits. Now remember, God is going to gift us with his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. So Peter's saying, set your hope on that. Set your hope on the fact that a fantastic future awaits when Jesus comes back. So what does it look like to set our hope? How are we supposed to to set our hope on this future reality? Where Peter goes on to say in in 1 Peter 1.13 that we're to prepare our minds for action and and we're to be sober-minded right now. So we have a future hope that's coming, but right now, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. One commentator said it like this, our future inheritance is incentive for present holiness. So fight, fight against sin. Flee from sin right now. Be on guard against sin right now because the hope of what is to come is 100% worth it. God is guiding us, but don't get lazy. God is bringing us through this life, but don't think that that negates effort on our part. Prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. The Christian life requires incredible intentionality. When we start to coast, when we start to get lax, and we aren't purposefully thinking about how we're living, that's when temptation gets us. That's when we give in to sin. That's when sin becomes the barb in our eyes and the thorn in our side. And honestly, the longer that we live the Christian life, Sometimes the easier it is to become complacent. It's, it's easier to let our guard down. Isn't that kind of true of much of life in general? The more experienced that we are at something, the less focused we become and the less, the less careful we can be. Many of you already know this, but for a couple of years, I worked right next door, Menards. And I worked in receiving, which meant that I unloaded merchandise off of trucks and helped to get that merchandise onto the sales floor. It also meant that I drove a forklift. And I was terrified when I got hired. Terrified of driving a forklift. Like, I wanted nothing to do with it. I hoped they'll forget to train me. I'll just get looked over and I'll just never have to drive it. They didn't forget. I had to learn. And as I learned, you might have thought I made lots of mistakes. Well, at first, I didn't. Because I was super careful. Like, I was so slow. I annoyed everybody because I was so slow, so methodical, because I wanted to make sure that I didn't mess up. Well, then I, I got better at it over time. And I realized something, that as I got better, the more error-prone I became. Like, I started really messing up. As I would say, I was pretty skilled with the forklift. I would, like, think, hey, I can just take this pallet, shoot my tines into the pallet, lift it up, throw it onto that rack. And then, ooh, smacked right into the paint, had a nice paint spill to clean up. I mean, I would do that all the time. It would just be like, I'd just be flying around doing my thing, and wham! 
I, I know how to not do that. I just was, I was getting ahead of myself because I was getting experienced. And I, I started to let my guard down. I started to think, I know what I'm doing. I got this. Well, the same can be true even in the Christian life. Because of, instead of thinking through and, and paying attention to life, we start to rely on muscle memory, spiritual muscle memory. And we start to think, we know what we're doing. We have to be careful. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. Don't lose your focus. Just because you've been a Christian for X amount of years, we must be persistent. We must be on our guard. We must be continually seeking to grow in our knowledge of God and our love for Him. We have to keep at it. We have to. So what we've seen from Numbers this morning is that God is guiding us. God is gifting us. And we should be thankful for that. But we also should be careful because sin can trip us up. And so, here's the last point of the sermon. And so, we must keep looking to Jesus. We must keep looking to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews talks about the Christian life being like a race. And the saints of the Old Testament, the saints of old, they are lining the way as we run this race. And they're encouraging us. They are cheering us on. They know that that faithfully following God is hard. They know that sin can trip us up. They know that sin can easily weigh us down. But they're saying, press on by looking to Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to run the race well, if you want to live the Christian life well, if you want to avoid sin, then it starts with looking to Jesus. He who lived a perfectly obedient life who ran the race flawlessly and glorified his Father. We must keep looking to him. Because when we take our eyes off of him, when we put life in cruise control and we just start to coast like we're flying down I-80, that's when we stumble. That's when we get tripped up by sin. Jesus is our only hope. Keep looking to him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you are still embracing the darkness of sin, turn to him. Turn to Jesus and believe that only because of his perfect sacrifice on the cross can you be forgiven of your sins. Because it is 100% possible. Jesus says, all who come to me I receive. Only through his death is there opportunity for life for you. So put all of your trust in him. Talk with Steve. Talk with myself. If If you're sitting next to a Christian that you came to church with, talk to them. Learn more about who Jesus is and put your trust in him. Well, I hope that over this past weekend, you had opportunity to to really reflect on the things that you're thankful for. And even this morning, we were reminded of two more ways to be thankful. God is guiding us and he's gifting us. And so let's live the Christian life well and let's keep looking to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we are a thankful people. When we reflect on 
all that you have done for us in sending your Son, all that you accomplished on our behalf through his death and resurrection on the cross. And as we look to the future and we consider what, what a wonderful hope that awaits us, an inheritance that, that centers around you, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we live in the middle of that and in the middle of waiting for that inheritance, joyful because we are in Christ, but still waiting for this future inheritance. Help us to run the race well. Help us to, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to fight against sin, to, to fight for holiness, to encourage each other, to, to come alongside each other, and, and to seek to run the race of the Christian life to your glory. So God, we, we ask that you would help us to that end. Help us as we go from here today to live for you, to live in a way that honors you, to be intentional with the Christian life. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.